Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. Every governor of our state makes history, but I suspect there have been very few who know their history as well as Connecticut's current governor, Edward M. Ned Lamont. In this very special episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Mary Donahue and I journey to the governor's offices in the state capitol to talk with Governor Lamont about a speech and now audio essay he recorded for this podcast titled 100 Years of Fake News and Real and Fake Wars. In an era when Americans are challenged to separate fact from fiction in a myriad of different media, the governor's message is a kind of cautionary tale for all of us. And as you'll see, it reflects some keen and insightful thinking from a governor who takes his history seriously. That's 100 Years of Fake News and Real and Fake Wars by Governor Ned Lamont on this episode of Grading the Nutmeg. Well, this is a very special podcast on Grading the Nutmeg today. We are in the state capital, the beautiful and historic state capital in Hartford. We are in the offices of Governor Edward M. Ned Lamont. Governor, thank you for having us. Well, great to be here. This is really exciting for us. We are here because of a remarkable essay you've written. We knew when you came in, we listened to your inaugural address, and we understood that you really understood history. But this essay shows us some pretty exciting stuff. I think the way this came about, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that this summer, as the government's attentions with Iraq escalated, the administration began deploying more American troops to the Middle East, Rumors of how many went range from 6,000 to 120,000. And in the midst of a new, but it's an all too familiar crisis, you sat down and wrote an essay that looked at what you called a hundred years of fake news and real wars. We read it. I was deeply impressed with the in-depth display of history you showed. And so we asked you to do a couple of things. One is to first read the essay so people can hear the story. You make a very compelling case and an important argument, I think. If you would, how do you feel about just reading the essay? Well, A, I'll give it a shot. Uh, B, after this governor thing, I'd love to be state historian. I can't think of a more meaningful job. You know, and I love I'm... history because it gives you a little perspective. I think those guys down in Washington, um, everything, they think it's the first time this has ever happened. And yet... History teaches you that we've seen this before. History at least rhymes with what happens. So that's why uh, over the last few years, as you heard the um, war drum beats going on on one occasion or another, I wanted to think back. When I was a teacher at CCSU, Central Connecticut State, I started talking to the students about, you know, everybody's talking about fake news. I said, well, this isn't the first time this has ever happened in the history of the country. Let's think about fake news and how it maybe applies to some of our military incursions over the last hundred years. And uh, that, that's what I wanted to try and do. When I was and I think this essay will people. be really revealing to people. So if you will. As I, you know, as I thought about war, I, I, I remembered a General Dwight Eisenhower who famously said, I hate war as only a soldier who has lived it can, as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. That's true of most wars. 
uh, but I wanted to make sure that people see the perspective. So then I wanted to think about, all right, let's talk about a century of wars and a little bit about how they came along and the, uh, sometimes how the news was manipulated. Well, first thing, when you uh, go into the war, you need maybe a, sometimes a catchy marketing phrase to get people uh, ginned up. So the first war I'd like to uh, talk about is a war that became known as that splendid little war. Okay, you're all history listeners. What was that? Well, that's what Teddy Roosevelt christened the Spanish-American War. William Randolph Hearst, he was the freshly admitted publisher of the New York Journal, and he was in a pitched battle for circulation with Joseph Pulitzer's The New York World, and Hearst was eager for war with Spain over the island of Cuba, and if President William McKinley wouldn't start a war, he'd have to do with that himself. Uh, I got a lot of this from an old friend of mine, Evan Thomas, who wrote a book called The War Lovers. So William Randolph Hearst sent his ace illustrator, a guy named Frederick Remington, down to Cuba to drum up some war fever. And uh, you historians, you remember Frederick Remington. He became an ace sculptor. You've maybe seen his bucking bronco in the backdrop of a lot of uh, Oval Office uh, visuals. So back to Remington, the illustrator, he went down to Havana, and not much was going on. He was tasked to go find scenes of war, scenes where the rebels are fighting back against the the Spanish, trying to find examples of Spanish um, brutality. He didn't find much of that, but he found some uh, really good rum. He found some lazy hammocks. He finally grew bored, and he asked William Randolph Hearst, not much going on here, let me come home. And William Randolph Hearst famously replied, Remington, you furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. So Frederick Remington, he hopped on a rumor that a Cuban woman thought to be delivering messages to the local rebels had been captured by Spanish troops and that they had allegedly strip-searched her. And Remington did it a delicious illustration on the front of all the Hearst papers of a naked woman surrounded by lusty Spanish soldiers. And that made for screaming front-page headlines in all of Hearst's papers. Joseph Pulitzer, by the way, his uh, arch-rival, he pushed back saying this never happened. Uh, if there was a woman uh, crossing the lines, uh, they were carefully searched by an elderly matron. But, but why let the facts stand in the way of a good story? So war fever was reaching a pitch. President McKinley had to respond with some type of gunboat diplomacy. Everybody was ginned up. So he decided to send the USS Maine to Havana Harbor. That was in 1898 to, quote, keep the peace. You heard that phrase. And all the while... This was going on. The Spanish government was suing, pleading for peace with the America. So fast forward, captain of the USS Maine was a guy named Captain Sigsby. And he was down there. And again, not much was going on there in Havana Harbor. So Sigsby was returning from a day on the town, a day in which he had included a bullfight, allegedly. He had had much merriment. And on his way back, he heard an explosion looked up and he saw the USS Maine was sinking. Ironically, next door was the Spanish frigate, and the Spanish frigate was there sending rescue boats trying to save the American sailors. Well, 
First New York Journal headline screamed for days, the good ship Maine was sunk by treachery. The Spanish insult the memory of the victims. And you all history buffs remember this phrase, to hell with Spain, remember the Maine. Well, what really happened? You maybe remember Admiral Rickover from a few decades ago. He was tasked to find out what happened, and he determined that the Maine had not been sunk by Spanish treachery, but rather its ammunition magazine had been ignited by a spontaneous fire in the coal furnace. And boom, the Maine was the first battleship. It blew up, but people forget it was the first battleship ever that uh, did not have mass, did not have sail power. It was the first battleship coal-fired steam power. And that's what happened. That leak led to the explosion of the munitions. But as they used to say in those days, a lie will travel halfway around the world, but the truth is still putting on its boots. I think you've heard that you, phrase. You bet. And uh, so Hearst's yellow journalism kept spreading the lies. The warship Maine was split in two by an enemy's secret infernal machine. The whole country thrills with war fever. Well, at that point, there was another famous jingoist. His name was uh, Teddy Roosevelt. He was Assistant Secretary of State. Inspired by this, he rounded up a few of the Rough Riders from his Dakota Badlands days, and he also found a few swells from his Harvard days, and he brought his manservant along with him, and he brought his publicist on a journey to Cuba. And just in case, you remember he was quite nearsighted, he sewed four pairs of glasses in his hatband just to make sure yeah. that old four eyes could see on the way up uh, San Juan Hill. And as he famously said, one crowded hour of a glorious life is worth an age without a name. And that was the jingoistic, imperialistic, manly spirit of the time. Meanwhile, his uh, comrade in crime was uh, William Randolph Hearst, who had also been lusting for war. So he motored down to Cuba on his yacht, the Sylvia, because he was very eager to join the uh, war that he had helped ignite. And as the charge up San Juan Hill readied, Hearst had his manservant pack a picnic basket with his finest china and silver, he donned a wide-brimmed hat, a necktie. He climbed on his horse, which was much too small for the portly uh, Hearst, and the war was joined. It was over within four months. And what Teddy Roosevelt called that splendid little war was, in fact, a bit of a fake war based on fake news. Unbelievable. All right, let's move forward 15 years, see if you uh, know your wars. What was the war to end all wars? Now called World War One. The later called World War One or the Great War. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere. You maybe remember Barbara Tuckman, she wrote in the Guns of August, 1914, that war was lit by, um, the fuse was lit by an assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. He was touring in his open car through Serbia. The Austro-Hungarian government insisted on a strong response to these, quote, terrorist threats, terrorist activities. We've heard that before. And the war spread from Europe through Asia, but America didn't get directly involved to Britain's great dismay. So it was about a year after this, 
that the British luxury liner, the Lusitania, set sail from New York Harbor for Britain. And it was about a week later that the British liner Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat, otherwise known as a submarine, resulting in over 1,200 dead, including 128 Americans. And at that point, the British press screamed that the Lusitania is a non-military ship. The attack had breached all international protocols. And President Wilson, who had been reluctant, was slowly being pressured into joining the war. Well, what else happened? An historian named Eric Larson wrote in his book, Deadweight, a very different argument. He says that the British, um, while they argued that the Lusitania was a civilian ocean liner with no munitions on board, in fact, it had been designed for multiple purposes, civilian as well as military, including special compartments to house all the heavy munitions. And when the ship was struck off the British coast by a German torpedo, which is uh, true, it was followed immediately by a second explosion much more deadly than the torpedo hit. And uh, historians like Larson say that second explosion was the munitions cargo that was exploding. Earlier, Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. Yep, he was there early. He was eager for America's participation in the Great War. And uh, Lord of the Admiralty, Churchill, before the Lusitania set sail, had asked for a report to be written. And the report was the political results of an ocean liner being sunk with American passengers on board. He was eager to get America into this war. And five days before the sinking of the Lusitania, another war hawk, Walter Page, who was our U.S. ambassador to Britain, he wrote to his son, and I quote, if a British liner full of American passengers is blown up, what will Uncle Sam do? That is what is going to happen. Those are in Walter Page's letters. Meantime, it's worth remembering that before the Lusitania set sail, the Germans had taken out over 50 full-page ads in American newspapers warning that the Lusitania was heading into a war zone. There was a period of great risk. Please don't uh, put yourselves at such risk. And they also worried that the ocean liner might be carrying contraband of war. So after the sinking of the Lusitania, soon thereafter, Woodrow Wilson declared war. And you know what happened? He had a secretary of state named William Jennings Bryan. Remember him? Cross the gold Bryan. William Jennings Bryan resigned angrily at the declaration of war, stating, quote, ships carrying contraband should be prohibited from carrying passengers. It would be like putting women and children in front of an army. That's why Wilson's secretary of state resigned. So the war to end all wars, that was a real war. It was the prelude to World War II. And it was a mix of hard news and fake news that led to America's role there. Facts still being disputed. Always worth asking the questions. All right, let's move forward, um, maybe a generation. Take a breather. Let's have a little fun. What was the War of the Worlds? Yep, Orson Welles, 1938 radio broadcast, uh, right at the, in the heart of the Depression, listening to radio, first time, everybody getting energized. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover Mills has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. Well, the War of the Worlds broadcast was obviously a fake war inspired by fake news, but nobody pretended it was anything but fiction. His broadcast repeatedly reminded listeners that he was reading a work of fiction. 
But the broadcast did take on a life of its own. They're going over to New York. Night, the sky's alive with their lights, just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Well, it's all over with humanity. And with news flashes about Martians invading Manhattan, the press began reporting that the switchboards were jammed, emergency rooms were jammed, traffic jams on the George Washington Bridge. And the next day, the New York Times reported terror by radio, lambasting the new news genre, radio. The nation as a whole continues to face the danger of incomplete, misunderstood news over a medium, which has to prove that it is competent to perform the news job. That's what the uh, New York Times uh, lectured, responding to the so-called panic following the War of the Worlds broadcast. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. But in fact, there was no panic. Not that many people were listening. Very few responded at all. The streets were empty. There was not much action in the emergency rooms. Okay, there was one frightened listener who sued CBS for $50,000 claiming that the network had caused her nervous shock, and that suit was dismissed out of hand. So how did this War of the Worlds non-panic get so hyped up? We all heard about it. Well, the printed press was happy to juice up sales of newspapers for a couple of days. Nothing rare about that. And if they could do so at the expense of radio, which is the new mass media that was eating into their advertising sales... That hurrah, that's a win-win. More sales for us and undercut the credibility of radio. <coughs> Let's move forward another um, 20 years or so. Uh, Dwight David Eisenhower's presidency. And there were many opportunities to declare war then. From McCarthyism to anti-communism at a feverish pitch. And America was on edge. There's only one communist party. The communist party that puts out this pamphlet. Setting the line for the communists in the United States is the same Communist Party as the one that tells Fifth Amendment communists how they should testify. It's one and the same party, my good friends. And when they say you don't treat them like gentlemen, traitors are not gentlemen, my good friends. They don't understand being treated like gentlemen. Again, my friend Evan Thomas describes this so well. Each time the band formerly known as the USSR, now Russia, crossed a, quote, red line, we've heard that, the red line was Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam. It was Kemoi Matsu in the South Pacific. It was Soviet tanks rumbling in the Hungary. Those were all red lines that the enemy had crossed. And each time that happened, Ike's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, would rush into the Oval Office and inform Ike, this time, quote, the godless communists have gone too far, Mr. President. This is why we have a nuclear weapon. Massive retaliation. The time is now. You know, or words to that effect. And each time Ike would come, dull us down, he'd compliment him on his excellent argument, worthy of consideration. And then Ike add something to the effect that John Foster Dulles, I have a golf game in a couple of hours and I just I have to get back to you. <laughs> and he never ever did. move forward another um, 10 years. The Vietnam War. I don't think it ever had a nickname, did it? The Vietnam War. Well, the pretext for the Vietnam War, um, 
many of you may remember was um, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, not a declaration of war, but a resolution. So what exactly happened at the Gulf of Tonkin that resulted in a unanimous vote in the House of Representatives and an 88-2 vote in the U.S. Senate to give President Lyndon Baines Johnson a virtual blank check in his war on Vietnam, resulting in one of the longest wars in American history. Now Afghanistan has trumped that. So during the early 1960s, the CIA had been backing covert sabotage operations um, in and around the Gulf of Tonkin, Vietnam. And the USS Maddox was offshore monitoring these uh, sabotage missions. And on August 2nd, 1964, there were three Vietnamese PT boats. That's an exaggeration. Small motorized boats. They approached the Maddox, which fired three warning shots in the direction of these boats. And the North Vietnamese boats returned fire, and the Maddox, USS Maddox, was unscathed except for one single bullet hole from the um, Vietnamese boats. And there was no American response, another incident that would have gone away, except that two days later, the USS Maddox returned to the Gulf of Tonkin to, quote, show the flag. And, and responding to radar signals, shadows, something, they fired away and reported back to Washington they were under attack. So half an hour later, President Johnson interrupted TV broadcasts across the country to announce that the USA was under attack and needed to defend itself. An hour later, the United States launched its first bombing mission against North Vietnamese targets, and the war was joined. We gotta get out of this place. In all likelihood, that August 4th attack on the Maddox never happened. LBJ later told his press secretary, Bill Moyers, for all I know, they were shooting at whales out there. And 30 years later, his Secretary of Defense, McNamara, met with General Jop, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. From uh, North Vietnam, um, you know, in their oral history, and they agreed that nothing had happened on August 4th. And there was one eyewitness to the event. You maybe remember Admiral Stockdale. And at the time, he was a young Navy aviator. He was flying over the Gulf of Tonkin a monitoring activity. And he later wrote, and I quote, this is Admiral Stockdale, I had the best seat in the house to watch that event. And our destroyers were shooting at phantom targets. There were no PT boats there. There was nothing but black water and American firepower. Well, Stockdale was told, don't say anything at the time, and he didn't. And it's worth noting, you know, that he had plenty of opportunity to say because he was the senior POW, prisoner of war at the Hanoi Hilton, and um, never revealed, never spoke, never confessed to anything. And he later became uh, Ross Perot's uh, vice presidential running mate. So 10 years after the Gulf of Tonkin fake news, the Vietnam War, Eventually claimed about 58,000 American dead, about 250,000 Cambodian victims, a million Vietnamese, 
And with that declaration of peace is at hand, our U.S. troops finally left in 1974. Soon thereafter, North Vietnamese took over the rest of the South. Today, there's a unified Vietnam. It's a popular tourist destination, trading partner for the United States. That was a fake news in a real war. Briefly, let me just say, who can remember Operation Urgent Fury? So 10 years after our panicky withdrawal from Vietnam, there was a coup on the Caribbean island of Grenada. And the prime minister was killed, and there was evidence that an airport runway was being extended, either extended to promote tourism or perhaps part of a Soviet-Cuban militarization of the Caribbean. This is all according to then-president um, Ronald Reagan. President Reagan and his administration highlighted the possible threat, remember, to the American medical students who were being educated on the island. Well, we had a reporter at Nightline uh, anchor, Ted Koppel, who was talking to the students. They never felt in any danger at all. But still, much later, they were um, famously photographed kissing the tarmac when they arrived back in the United States with some uh, coaching from um, Reagan's pre PR impresario, Michael Deaver. And he named the Grenada attack invasion Operation Urgent Fury. Well, it didn't fool everybody. The U.N. General Assembly condemned this invasion by a vote of 108 to 9. Even our staunchest ally, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, Britain, expressed a deep skepticism. That said, the invasion was very popular in the United States. Over 5,000 medals were handed out to soldiers for their bravery. So many believe, however, that it was more than just a coincidence that the invasion liberation of Grenada happened two days after the Marine barracks in Beirut was blown up in a, quote, terrorist attack, killing 241 Americans and service personnel, and forcing President Reagan to redeploy the rest of the troops out of Beirut. And perhaps the liberation of Grenada was hatched. Grenada's success knocked the Beirut failure right off the front pages of our newspapers. Let's take one more Take us right into the 21st century, one that many of you uh, remember like yesterday, Operation Iraqi Freedom. There was a bit of a rush to judgment, cherry-picked intelligence, planted sources, all replayed without filter by the uh, U.S. media as the administration of George W. Bush, his administration carefully built the case for war and imminent danger from so-called weapons of mass destruction. Well, the docile reporting at the time was best personified by Judith Miller, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times journalist. And week after week, she served up unfiltered front-page blasts of propaganda from, quote, unnamed administration sources and a shadowy Iraqi insider uh, that CIA had nicknamed Curveball. Those unnamed sources, we later found out, included our NSC advisor, Condi Rice, Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld, Vice President Dick Cheney, they all served up the wobbly intel to the New York Times. And then on Sunday, they'd go on Meet the Press and the other Sunday talk shows, and they'd refer back to the New York Times reporting to verify what they were reiterating as evidence that Iraq's Saddam Hussein was scouring Africa for nuclear material. Hogwash. Over the next 15 years of war and occupation, American military never found any evidence of weapons of mass destruction. And I do know that that could have been concluded before the U.S. invasion in 2003. The U.N. had um, weapons inspectors on the ground in Iraq 
and they were skeptical of the weapons of mass destruction claims. And uh, they had a chief inspector, Hans Blix, and I asked him, and he told me there was one place we hadn't been allowed to inspect. Those were the palaces. And these are big palaces, hundreds of acres. And Saddam Hussein, the head of Iraq, had very reluctantly at the end given the inspectors carte blanche to inspect each and every one of those palaces, the last possible hiding place for the weapons of mass destruction. Those inspections, he told me, could have taken place in probably a few weeks, but the rush to war blinded the Bush administration to any further inquiry. You maybe remember how fast can Iraq develop nuclear bomb? Condi Rice said, um, right now there maybe is only smoke, but I don't want that smoking gun to be a nuclear cloud. Well, she's now a professor at Stanford. Remember a CIA um, leader, director, George Tenet? He told the president when it comes to massive, uh, when it comes to weapons of mass destruction, Mr. President, it's a slam dunk. Slam dunk. No doubt the weapons are there. Uh, he's now a banker. And Judith Miller um, was forced to resign from the New York Times and went over to Fox News. I say all this not to say that we haven't had some real wars of necessity. You know, World War II, you know, Desert Storm come to mind. And there have also been some wars of choice that made strategic sense, or at least strategically positioned uh, the United States. World War I comes to mind. But I also want us to be very careful and remember Eisenhower's words about war the brutality, the futility, the stupidity of war and what it can cause. So we're in an era now where every once in a while you hear the drum beats of war beating again. I wanted to do this podcast just to hope that this short history reminds you, don't just blindly defer to the experts. You know, in this internet age, you can read media from the widest variety of sources. Check in with our allies and others to get a wider perspective. Um, as Ronald Reagan once said, trust but verify. And I hope that's part of the message of this, my very first podcast. We're so happy to have you. And that's such a good point. In our podcast, we try to put forth both sides of a controversy or tell both sides of a story and really dig into the truth. So you are definitely in the right podcast. I would like to say this. You, you began that essay talking about war with a president that I know you admire. And I see his uh, picture here in the office, Teddy Roosevelt. And he called that a, sprint, a splendid little war. But in your retelling, neither the Rough Rider or the United States' role in that war came out looking uh, terribly good. What do you think? It was a war that didn't have to be fought. As I said, the Spanish were trying to sue for peace. There were alternatives. It was a fake war. It was over almost before it started. I think Teddy Roosevelt, he was not then president. You know, he had his other reasons for wanting to be there and show the flag and demonstrate American strength. He obviously did that as president uh, some years later. Isn't there just this huge irony in that the, the person who in your story is so resistant to war is the military commander who fought the biggest war of the 20th century, that it's Eisenhower is the one who is damping down John Foster Dulles, who is the war hawk there. What can we conclude from that, that the one with the experience is the one who says, we don't want to go there? I think Colin Powell in the lead up to uh, the war in Iraq, right. he was uh, the military were expressing skepticism. They know what war is. You remember, um, if you break it, you will own it. They also understand the social and economic consequences of war, not just the death and the injuries and what it could mean to a community like that. So, yeah, the, the military are not the war hawks. I think you can show that going back in time. It's often those who never served or taken the lead when it comes to 
beating those war drums. The war that I grew up watching on television, of course, was the Vietnam War. And it is surprising that President Johnson was so susceptible to the sort of propagandistic continuing with the the fake news about we're winning, we're winning, and really contributed to the escalation of that war. How do you see his presidency? I think as a domestic president, I think he could have gone down as, you know, one of the greats, depending on your political point of view, but he got an awful lot done, uh, everything from the civil rights to the war on poverty. But I think he was dragged down and eventually forced uh, to not resign, but couldn't run again because he got us in this uh, terrible quagmire. You know, he was terrified that America would be, quote, a helpless, pitiful giant. Do you remember that phrase? And uh, he, he let those political considerations uh, trump, you know, good, smart military advice. The wonderful thing about this essay is all the different ways you show that people have deployed some version of fake news to their own end. In the Spanish-American War, you have fake news created by a publisher because the publisher is trying to sell papers. In World War One, you have the British government advancing a version of what appears to be fake news now because they want American entry into the war. In the War of the Worlds, you've got a fake panic caused by a <laughs> fake war that was on radio and the newspapers advanced it. So what does the average person do? There are so many different authors of fake stories who have their agendas. How do people really find a way to make the appropriate evaluations of information in a world where the line between fake news and reality has perhaps never been more blurred? Well, I'm not a uh, President Trump fake news, damn the uh, journalists. Uh, I think there are a lot of extraordinary journalists out there. You've got to find who you believe, think who you have credibility. But there's no excuse. In this day and age, there's no excuse. You can go to the Internet. You can read um, news reports from a um, 100 different countries. You can get local insight into what's going on. You can read both points of view. And if I had one thing, don't just defer to the experts. Not to knock our journalists. We've got a lot of frontline folks who are doing their very best. At the end of the day, it comes down to the individual to be an informed citizen. Now, Governor, is it true that one of your grandfathers was a key negotiator in the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I? Oh, that's true. Yeah, my great-grandfather was um, uh, there in the 20s helping to negotiate the Treaty of Versailles and the financial um, remuneration back between the Germans and the Allies. Does that... Uh, give you any special insight into World War One? You talked about that in your essay a little bit. Uh, no special insights, but um, uh, I, I read a lot about that. So you, you certainly know how the Germans, as well as the Allies, never recovered from that World War One. And you want to have a peace that doesn't lay a prelude to another war. And they 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 had uh, was it Kellogg Briand? What was the what was the the act where they outlawed war? I don't think I have that quite right. Uh, to show that that's not the way to do it. And ironically, also, um, I had a grandfather who was a Quaker, and uh, he could not, um, He, as a Quaker, he was sort of a hawkish guy, but he couldn't serve in war. So they said, great, you're going to go over with the Red Cross. So he was one of the very first Americans over there in World War One, and he was one of the very first Americans injured when a German, um, you know, when they blew up his ambulance. So we have a little bit of history there. We just had that big anniversary of World War One, and a lot of these family stories have come out. And so it's go so interesting to hear your own family connections. Your family has had 
involvement in many of America's great wars and some of the Scottish wars before they ever came to America. There's a, what is it, the massacre at Danoon or something that was a Lamont in Scotland? Is this a... Yeah, the... the the Campbells beat us up pretty bad. Yeah, those Campbells we're, are we're, tough. We're, we're right? getting over it. It took us a couple <laughs> centuries, though. You had an uncle who fought in World War II. Yeah, no, my dad's um, older brother, uh, Tom, eyesight wasn't good enough uh, to fly, so he ended up uh, in a submarine. And he was um, that was one of the very last submarines to go down. They were um, knocking out uh, oil shipments in the Tokyo Harbor in the Pacific. Yeah, it was and 1940. It was May of 1945 when his ship yeah. went missing. And right? well, all I can remember from my family is um, missing in action. It, you just don't know. Yeah. yeah, his mother never knew. She always kept hoping he was on some Pacific island and might show up at some point. Yeah, that has to be, I think, the most terrible thing when you just don't know what happened. And uh, ironically, today it was a submarine called the Snook, and all um, the descendants of folks who went down on the Snook have a Facebook page. That's so great. whatever that is, sixty, seventy years later, they're all talking back and forth and comparing stories and letters. Well, I saw a picture of the snook, and I, I actually think your uncle was in it. You know, he's a very young man at the time, but they had a flag behind it of the way they would do in the war, putting all of the victories that they'd had over Japanese ships, and apparently he was in the thick of it. I mean, from from what it looked like, they were, they were very busy in that war. And those are little tin cans back then now. I've been up to electric boat. I, yeah. I see <laughs> yeah, what they it's got really now. different. Yeah, my son was a submarine officer. He's six feet five. Oh, so, really? Yeah, and I never thought he'd even fit inside those. But you can now, which is pretty exciting. You're obviously somebody who's really thought about history and about Connecticut history. Is there a? Do you have a favorite era or event or governor that you find inspiring that you think about? Well, I, I think um, been governor during the colonial time and then during the revolutionary time, Trumbull. Um, you know, you're, you were creating a government every bit as much as George Washington was uh, down in the capital back then was New York. But um, I, I've read a little bit about Chester Bowles, um, Benton and Bowles, yeah. a business guy. I'm the first uh, business guy um, that we've had. So I feel a little identity there. He lost after two years to a political guy. So I hope. <laughs> we'll but, but he was, you know, he he really advanced a very progressive agenda while he was in office. He got a lot he done. He did. Yeah. Lowell is probably the guy I got to know the best of our, um, uh, you know, governors. And, and I thought he was a profile in courage. He took on a, a tough issue and uh, tried to solve it in an honest way. What do you think those big challenges for you are going to be? What are you going to be remembered for having succeeded at? Well, we're states at a bit of a crossroads. Uh, we've had um, 30 years with no real job creation. We've got a fiscal situation. It's a little messy. And, um, you know, when GE left, we thought, uh, last one out, turn out the lights. So I'd like to do a couple of things. I'd like to, A, restore a sense of confidence and optimism about this state. And I, st I start with the business leaders. I said, if you're not optimistic, you know, I've, I could do everything I can. You believe in this state. Others are going to believe in this state. I'm going to do everything I can to help you stay and grow and expand here. I'm doing everything I can to get young people to say, this is a great place you want to be. I know New York and Boston are pretty cool, but they all come to this uh, state for college, and a lot of them uh, want to stay. So I'm trying to get that energy going, fix this fiscal situation, get the state growing again. 
you have talked about how history rhymes or resonates. Is there anything in Connecticut history in the past that you feel resonates with the situation in the state today? Or maybe in a broader question, are there things in Connecticut's past that inform your thinking as governor today? Yeah, solve the problem. I think we go back 50 years where um, somebody else can solve the pension problem. Somebody else can fix the bridge. If the bridge doesn't fall on my watch, I uh, don't have to worry about it. And that's not true of Connecticut history. It's true of politicians and politics, I think. And um, I'm trying my best to change that mindset. That's great. I am absolutely confident that the people in the history community who hear this podcast are going to walk away truly impressed with both your knowledge of history and your understanding of how history works. And I think once they listen to your essay, they're going to think very carefully before they sign on for the next major uh, fake or possibly real conflict. Well, I'll just you know leave you with the thought that um, you know I'm going around the state. I'm talking about STEM and advanced manufacturing and, and training people for 21st century jobs, and you got to have that skill set. I come out of the liberal arts, and I love history. And I started up a telecommunications company. That's what I did. But remember, the liberal arts and history, they teach you to keep asking the right questions and looking around the corner. And for young people, you're going to have four or five different careers. So don't be limited just to the skill set you've learned. Learn to continue to learn. Learn to continue to keep asking those right questions. And I think history helps us do that. That's why I wanted to do this today with you. The thing I tell my students is it's all about curiosity. Stay curious and you will thrive. Thank you so much, Governor. Much appreciated. Yes, thank you. Well, Mary, thank you. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Governor Ned Lamont, Rob Blanchard, and Connecticut Explored publisher Elizabeth Norman. If you like this podcast, we hope you'll take a few minutes to give Grading the Nutmeg a review on your favorite podcast app. Reviews matter because they help us keep our audience growing. For more great Connecticut history stories, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. This podcast was produced by Patrick O'Sullivan, Mary Donahue, and Walter Woodward. And we all hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.